Craig Hoffman. Welcome into the Hoffman Show here on HoffmanShow.com. If you subscribed on iTunes, listening that way, thank you very much. It is much appreciated. If you want to subscribe on iTunes, just go to HoffmanShow.com, click blog, and there's a nice pretty button for you on the right side of the page. It'll take you to iTunes where you can then subscribe. Today on the show, we will start with the Baylor story, then we will get to the NBA playoffs and also, this Matt Harvey story is really weird. Guest uh, Ken Carmen from Cleveland on the NBA playoffs and Alexa Dat up from New York City on the Harvey story. But we're going to start with Baylor. Uh, and I look, I don't know how else to put this. And I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I'm on the internet right now. This story's f***ed up. I don't really know how else to say it. I mean, I guess I could say it's messed up, it's screwed up. But because I'm on the internet and can take full advantage of the English language, I think it's more accurately described as being f***ed up. Baylor yesterday releases a 13-page document. Uh, Pepper Hamilton, the law firm they hired, I guess, releases this 13-page document, a summary of their findings into an investigation into Baylor's handling of sexual assaults over the past three years. In that 13-page document, some version of the word fail, failure, failing, fail, 41 times. A failure to do this, a failure to do that. The department failed to do this. 41 times in 13 pages. And that somewhat starts to begin to describe the failure of Baylor University to their students, and specifically their female students. This story makes me sick on a lot of levels. And I think a lot of times in the media it's a race to outrage, and sometimes it's warranted and sometimes it's not. If you're not outraged by this, you don't have a soul. The word that I think best describes how Baylor University acted over the past three years is inhumane. Do you realize how often sports stories, or at least in this case, a story with a tie to sports, because the Baylor football program has a large role in this story, although it is just a piece, and it's important to remember that. This was not the failing of a football program. This was the failing of a university. But do you realize how many stories get to the level of inhumane? And even news stories get to the level of inhumane over a period of time like this. This is gross. Specifically, some things from the report that I wanted to to highlight. Go to page 7. And we could start earlier, but just uh, there's three things that I copied and pasted out of this report. This is from page 7. And it goes to one of the big points that just leaps off the page. One of the things that I would say stuck, stuck with me the most from reading this. Investigations were conducted in the context of a broader culture and belief by many administrators that sexual violence, quote, doesn't happen here, end quote. A lot of people were shocked that this happened at Baylor because it's a Christian university with these strong values and 
that's supposed to be a part of the experience of Baylor. And I talked about that a little bit with Mosley uh, about a week ago when Matt Mosley came on and, and talked about this before this report came out. And we talked about how the university sells this Christian experience, this religious experience. This is a school that bans alcohol, bans extramarital sex. And when you read this report, it is abundantly clear. It is crystal clear that this culture at Baylor happened not in spite of that, but because of that. Because as students would come forward saying they'd been sexually assaulted, saying they'd been raped, but in doing so had to admit that they'd been drinking or that they may have had previous sexual encounters with the person they were accusing, they're a rapist, since many of them were telling the truth, if not all of them, because well over 90% of women, nearly 100% of women statistically, are telling the truth. False rape accusations happen, but not very often. And these women would come forward and be dismissed because they were drinking or, or be looked down upon or at times completely dismissed because they were drinking or had previous sexual encounters. And that was seen as a no-no by the administration as opposed to having amnesty from those acts because they were trying to get help because they were raped. That's f***ed up. That's summed up in this paragraph just a few pages later. Universities' approach to issues related to alcohol or drug use by students created barriers to reporting. In addition, prior to August 2015, the university did not have a written amnesty policy for alcohol or other drug violations when reporting misconduct. Perceived judgmental responses by administrators based on a complainant's alcohol or other drug use or prior consensual sexual activity also discouraged reporting or continued participation in the process. This is college, man. If you want to have these rules, and if you catch students breaking them and want to take disciplinary action, fine. If that's how you want to roll, fine. But it's college, man. As an administration, as a university, you have to be adults in a room and go, the reality is kids are going to do this stuff. Because it's college and kids drink and they experiment with drugs and sex and all of these things that happen in college. And if that results in a rape, we've got to go, the rape is more important. That wasn't happening at Baylor and it wasn't in the rules that it had to happen until August of last year. Well into Baylor's problems with sexual assault. That should disgust you. As should this. As the last three pages of this report do deal specifically with the Baylor football program. In certain instances, including reports of a sexual assault by multiple football players, athletics and football personnel affirmatively chose not to report sexual violence and dating violence to an appropriate administrator outside of athletics. Baylor, Baylor failed in large part to have proper processes in place, and when it comes to the football program and football staff, they couldn't even follow those. 
This report says that staff took it upon themselves to do interviews to conduct ad hoc investigations. And, like, if you're Art Bryles or any member, director of football operations, assistant coaches, whoever, and a girl comes to you and says, one of your players did this awful thing to me. You should, like, I understand wanting to take responsibility and wanting to try to make it right, but he also was trying to protect his player. And if you're Art Bryles, you have to go, this is, I'm, this is not what I'm here for. I need to tell someone else and encourage this young woman to go to the proper authorities because I'm not that. Our Bryles built his reputation on character, on doing things the right way. And we could say that our Bryles did these awful things without malice. It wasn't like he was trying to, it wasn't like he woke up and was like, I'm going to hide sexual assault. He saw it as protecting his player um, or trying to do the right thing. And he's horribly misguided. Like that's the best case scenario for our Bryles. Maybe it was more sinister. Maybe he said, I need these guys to win. And I'm just going to ask them what happened. And I'm going to believe what they tell me. And that's so far beyond naive. But maybe that's what Art thought was best. In which case, you're not ready to be a D1 football coach. A leader of a community. Because that's what, especially in a town like Waco, like... This is Central Texas, man. Football's king. You're not ready for that. It's more than X's and O's. Art Bryles is a genius X's and O's guy. um, And obviously he was a heck of a recruiter in terms of identifying football talent. But it's a lot more than that. That's what the job is. It's all of this stuff. And if you're Art Bryles, and a lot of people defending Art Bryles want to say, he got burned by giving kids second chances. Well, when you give someone a second chance, there's a reason it's the second chance. And Art Bryles and anyone defending him fails to realize that. And that's sick. That's how this stuff keeps happening. And it's why, as much as we want to think that this will be a tipping point, it won't be. And the same crap is going to keep happening. Because there are people out there that are willing to give second chances and not do it properly. If you're going to give a second chance, that person has to be treated differently. There has to be a different standard. You have to look for reasons that they're failing. If you want to give a guy a second chance, you better be damn sure on the front end that he's turned his life around. And you better be hyper aware of the behaviors that could sign that he's repeating his first offense. That wasn't happening at Baylor. It's like, oh, we'll bring this guy in, second chance, let him go. And by the way, the last bit in this report talks about how they didn't do their due diligence. So it's like, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll give a guy a second chance and we don't really care to look at what happened, why he needs a second chance. Or... They had guys who screwed up, got caught, and then they'd cover it up so that they could go get a second chance elsewhere. 
give them a little help on the way out the door, which then created problems on other campuses. This was a complete and total failure by a university to protect its students. And that's really the one line, like forget the 13 pages, if they just released a one-line summary of what this was, it would be Baylor University systematically failed to protect its students. And if you want to talk about the football program, they failed to eliminate risks and acted in a way that made their campus more dangerous. There's a lot of other tangents off this topic, whether universities should be responsible for sexual assault investigations at all, whether that should be the police or not. Um, Very briefly for those that think, yeah, the police should be involved. There's a reason a lot of women don't want to go to police either. And campuses are supposed to be designed by Title IX and the Violence Against Women Act in 2013 to be safer havens, somewhere they feel they can go, where their stories can be heard and they can proceed accordingly and get help. And if they want to then bring in a criminal element to it, then fine. But the standards are different. Rape cases are really hard to prosecute because often it's it's he said, she said. Well, he said, she said, beyond a reasonable doubt is hard to prove. The standard in Title IX cases is a preponderance of evidence. More likely than not. That's why universities are involved. And Baylor failed in every way possible, intentionally and unintentionally, to uphold that standard. That should make you sick. Because again, the word I come back to is inhumane. What Baylor did, what Art Bryles and his staff did, whether on purpose with malice or just by complete grotesque negligence, was inhumane. And it's going to stain that university for a long time. Craig Hoffman. Hard left turn now as we bring in our first guest, Ken Carmen, hosts mornings in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. The Ken Carmen Show with Anthony Lima on 92.3 The Fan. And Ken, as you guys took calls the last couple of days, the fan base now after Cleveland comes back, the Cavs come back and destroys Toronto uh, in Game 5 at home. How confident are the fans there that they can close this thing out tonight in Toronto as opposed to needing a seventh game in Cleveland? I think they're very confident. I, I know that they haven't played well at Toronto, and the fans obviously know they haven't played well in Toronto, but it seemed like they got some things worked out. I think if, they, if they're able to do a lot of the same stuff they were able to do at home, and it's not just like big shots and doing some of the other stuff. But if they're able to do some of the things that they were able to do at home as far as trapping, uh, getting better positioning on, on, on rebounds, which they were able to get in Game 5, uh, a lot of people are pretty confident that they should be able to pull away with a win and uh, be able to get their feet up and get rested before the uh, before the NBA Finals. Are you one of those people? Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I have... Uh, I can't say I have spring confidence tonight because anything can happen. They're on the road, and they've been a team that you can't really fully trust all year long. So to say that I have supreme 100% confidence, I, I I wouldn't agree with that if I were to say it. I'd be lying to you. But I do have confidence that they've gotten some things figured out. I have confidence in myself that I've been able to watch them and hope that they do it. But you never truly know. So I guess it comes down to a certain degree of whatever confidence you would have. Yeah, uh, I have confidence that Bismack Biombo won't be a superhuman again. 
but we'll see. Uh, he's obviously been great the two games at home. Um, how delighted are you in the irony that there's a story in this series involving a casino and it doesn't involve J.R. Smith? <laughs> I'm pretty good. I, you know, I don't think it was – fans will make it a big deal. But the, the TMZ story says, well, hours before. Well, 18 and a half hours before. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that throws you off. But if you're a fan, like if the Cavs did it and it was the same time – you go, wait a minute. Now, everybody's proverbially all in. Why aren't you all in? Where's your head at? You know, people take it seriously. They get emotional about it. So I think fans, fans would react very nasty if the Cavalier doing it. And for all we know, Cavs have done it in the past. I think that's very much true. However, I think for a lot of fans out there, I think for a lot of fans out there, they just kind of will take whatever they can get. If it, if it becomes something that can be taken away, from whatever that the Rock Raptors are doing, I think they'll, they'll be fine with it. They'll take it. Yeah, no, it's nothing. 2 a.m. for an NBA player is like 10 o'clock for the average human being uh, because of their schedules. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. Like, I work, when I when I did night, like, I go to bed at 4.30 and people go, 4.30? I'd be like, well, wait a minute now. I get off at midnight. If you get off at 5, you're not going to bed at 6. You know, so you, you got the entire sports there relatively early. So I think for a lot of folks, you just don't realize, for any players, exactly what you said. You're done at 11. Uh, I mean, they think we done and out of the arena by 11 o'clock. So, yeah, they, they keep late hours. So I, I don't think 2.30, I mean, unless they were stone cold loaded. Um, yeah. 30 is very late for an or excuse me, 2.30 is very late for an NBA player. No, not at all. Um, the home road splits in this series have been staggering. Uh, I'm just curious. I mean, I watched the Cavs a good bit during the regular season, but clearly not as much as you have um, and, and not with the intent, uh, attention that you have. Um, how different were the Cavaliers on the home versus road splits during the regular season? Uh, was it as dramatic as it has been in these playoffs, specifically against the better teams? Because obviously, you know, during the regular season, you're going to get road games against teams that just flat out stink because it's the regular season. But but against the, the, the league's better competition, how, how different were they home versus road um, in the regular season? People are going to look at this advanced stats and like the Zeneclos of the world, and there's nothing against them, but look at some advanced stats and try to find some reasoning there. I just thought there were times where they were up and they were down. They threw in a couple of clunkers at home. Um, so they, they've been beaten at home before this year, and they, they look bad in a couple of those losses. And there's times where they went on the road, they looked even worse. There's been times on the road, they, they played really, really well. So I think it just depends on what given night they were on. Every, the whole season, it seemed to be a real pre-season. They were finally kind of enjoying a, a regular season, but it's supposed to get the playoffs. Where the regular season was just kind of everybody getting in line and getting things ready, and I think LeBron kind of took it that way. We noticed LeBron took a lot more jumpers than what he's taking now. And I, I just think that overall the energy would kind of go up and down, and that can be a terrifying thing because you want to trend upwards before you get to the NBA Finals, before you get to the playoffs. And it just didn't really go that way for him. So we had to kind of trust what they did, and they ripped off 10 in a row. So it seemed to be okay. I, I kind of like it as a fan. I, I kind of like it as a fan that they lost a couple on the road, and then they have this chance to kind of give themselves a little bit road, a little bit of road momentum, and then give themselves a chance to kind of get back and get ready for the finals. Because I, I don't care. I think you're going to get one stolen at home, and I think you're going to have to steal one from them against one of these teams that they're going to play in the finals, whether it be Golden State or whether it be Oklahoma City. Um. 
on LeBron, uh, are they more effective with him playing as a big? I mean, obviously there's there's balance and everything, right? You don't want LeBron to never be handling the ball, but but when they've had their best stretches, is it with him acting as a big where he's screening and rolling and getting to the rim that way, and Kyrie is handling, or is is it with the ball in LeBron's hands? Uh, well, Kyrie handling can be a curse because Kyrie will overhandle and it'll be a ball. Because uh, I think part of that is natural because. He was he was basically for the eleven games that he was at Duke. I thought he was the only scoring option they had, and that's based on Duke. Um, but also that when he was there for four years without LeBron and three years without LeBron, he was the only scoring option then. So of course he had to be a ball hog. And people go, we don't have enough assists. Who was he going to assist to? Right. Dion was a ball hog. Dion did not want to play off ball. The other guys couldn't trust him because they were terrible. So who's he going to get you? John Stockton had to have Carl Malone, right? Right. So you have that guy who can score to get a freaking assist. We only sometimes that we we just want to look at a box score and say that that's the end all be all. The baseball, everything's recorded. You can try to do that. And basketball, no. You got to be smarter than that. So for Kyrie, I think a lot of it's old habits. But for LeBron. LeBron obviously has the same trait where when he first started, there was not a lot of guys he could trust. Miami, there was a million guys he could trust. He comes back, there's a million guys he's supposed to be able to trust. And he never really wanted to be a ball-dominant type player. But off the ball is where he's best, and I think he knows that. But I do think he's reticent to be in the post. I think he wants to be a guy who can hit a shot from anywhere. And he's really not. I think it bothers him. Because I think that with his size, his athletic ability, his overall skill, he really is the best overall basketball player in the game. But I think there's parts where he's challenged and where it bothers him that he can't just step into a three and hit a three from anywhere like Steph Curry can. That part really bothers him. So during the years, you've seen him work on his outside shooting. But I mean, it's like it's almost like the practices where he'll take three and then he hits a three and he gets excited. So then it's an invitation to hit a bunch or try to hit a bunch more. And it's not a good three-point shooter. He's never really been a great three-point shooter. So I, I feel that he feels that he needs to do that. But during these games, he can dictate so much because he can play every position. He can dictate so much inside because you throw him into the post. You can't just let him have a free pass or he'll score 60 all on drive. But you have to be able to try to guard him but guard somebody else. And if you have shooters who are hitting that night, uh, it's impossible. Because it really reminds me of the cast with LeBron in the post. Remind me of what Dwight Howard and the Magic were able to do to him and, and the Cavs back in 2009. Where Dwight was so good inside, and now he's not worth love. But Dwight, when Dwight was so good inside, and then you had Richard Lewis hit shots, and he had Turkaloo on the perimeter, and you couldn't leave Dwight alone because he'd just kill you inside, but then he'd pop it out to somebody else who was able to hit shots, and we kept waiting for them to go cold in that series, and they never went cold in that series. Because you have Jr. now Channing Fry, Kyrie, Kevin Love to a certain extent, even though he's dealing he's with his troubles. When you have LeBron inside where you must respect his play, and then he's able to pop it out to somebody else like he has been, uh, that, that's just a team that's unbeatable on the offensive end. I firmly believe that because they've they had nights where they just can't miss. And if, they, you know, if you leave those guys with wide open shots, there's nights where they're going to kill you and they're going to kill you going away. So it's, I think it's just a matter of time. And I think that he knows that he doesn't want to, but sometimes he's forced to be there in the post. Let's talk about Kevin Love and his struggles. 
Would you describe him an eight-year guy who, after this pep talk, seemed to get right in Game 5? He was awesome in Game 5, but obviously his struggles on the road were horrific. Would you describe Kevin Love as mentally fragile, or is that too harsh? I don't think it's harsh. I think it's right. I really do. Uh, Guys don't want to be called weak mentally, but I think he's a little bit weak mentally. Um, But you look at the way, it's not just Kevin in Cleveland. I think it's Kevin everywhere. Uh, when he was, you know, we've, we've made jokes about it. I couldn't believe they actually brought it up on the on the broadcast on ESPN on uh, on Wednesday. Is there's a difference between fat Kevin and thin Kevin? I mean, you go look at before and after pictures. You saw Kevin Love then when he was at, at, at UCLA and when he first got to Minnesota. Um, I think he said, somebody said, now I don't know this for a fact, so don't, I, I can't sit there and I'm not reporting anything or anything like that. There's always been something about some sort of cosmetic surgery done. Um, and then, of course, he's dropped a ton of weight. And he's always, I guess, he's always been heavy in his life. And he's always had tremendous skill. I thought he carried a lot of that onto the court. It made him a very insecure person. And I think it made him a very aggressive person. He was great at UCLA being aggressive, playing like a son of a bitch, and really getting people's faces about it. And I think he did that to a degree in Minnesota. And, and the final part of Minnesota, and then here, he's dropped this weight. Uh, there's a lot of women who think he's, uh, he's just an Adonis, and he is. I mean, good God, he's a pretty-looking guy. I mean, let's be honest here. <laughs> uh, so, so there's part of that where that sticks into it, and I think it's kind of taken away from his play. Because before he was so insecure that that's where he really spoke out. And now... Uh, it seems to be different. He seems to be much more of a finesse player than he ever was. And I just remember him playing at UCLA and, like, him and Westbrook, like, getting guys faces and stuff and, like, looking to fight people. Like, they were a tough team. And he was a tough player. And you don't see that now. I, I, I do think part of that is that he's made his personal life better. And so anytime a person makes their personal life better and the Senate, they're cheap personally in that case, I can't sit there and call the guy a jerk or say that he's not doing it right. If he's living right, he's living right. But I also think it's messing him up because his personal life does in with his professional life. But basketball is an emotional sport. And I think that that's throwing him off a little bit because there's nights he seems to be on it, there's nights he doesn't seem to be on it, and when he's not on it, it carries over to another night and another night and another night. Well, whatever he did before the, the last game, he should bring that to Toronto. Whatever, whatever, whatever needed to happen, bring that across the border. It makes it even tougher for him because this is what, and I always make comparisons to Chris Bosch. I mean, it's ad nauseum, the comparisons I make to Bosch. But Bosch, I thought, to be the same type of player. He, he, he built back up. He was a great player, an all-star in Toronto. But Toronto struggled to make the postseason. You know, he wasn't that type of game-changing player. And I always used to think that Chris Bosch was overrated. Wrongly, I thought he was overrated. Bosch, to me, has made himself into such a greater player because he's been willing to do what needs to be done. He's been willing to become a role player, or he was willing to become a role player for LeBron. And Kevin has struggled with that. And people get so mad. I get people calling me up and tweeting me up and yelling at me because I say Kevin loves a role player because they feel it's the same type of verbiage as what you say when you talk about a guy being a, uh, a quarterback being a game manager, that it's just another word to say he's not good. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that's true for the turn game manager, and I don't think that's true for a role player. You're a good team. You're one of the NBA's best. You're one of the teams that people picked to win the finals over the last couple of years. 
if you're there next year, you'll be another team that people pick to be part of the finals conversation next year. So if you're part of that, then your role changes. LeBron is better than Kevin Love. Your role changes around LeBron. Kyrie is the second best scoring option that they have. Kevin's role changes around LeBron. You are a max player, but your role is completely different. And that's something I think he struggled with. And I think a lot of fans, when they criticize Kevin, I think that's something they struggled with. And in turn, when I say he's a role player, well, we're not paying role players max money. Yeah, you are. You're paying Kevin Love max money. You're paying Christian Thompson max money. Yeah. And that's fine. Thanks for there. Yeah, and I don't want to go too far off the Bosch deep end. The biggest difference between those guys is Bosch was an unreal defender for Miami in that scheme. Obviously, obviously, Love is is not that. Um, last question, real quick: uh, Who would you rather see in the finals if you're the Cavaliers, the Warriors, or the Thunder? I'd still rather see Oklahoma City. Um, Oklahoma City's always been a better matchup. Even when the Cavs didn't have LeBron, they won games against OK State. Where OK City, where they didn't, they didn't really deserve to. Uh, Kyrie, whatever reason, always played well against Oak City. Um, the Cavs have, have always played well. LeBron's always played well against Kevin Durant. I, I still think it's a better matchup. Now, I know that they come in hot as hell. Either way, it's going to be a really tough, tough series. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. Oklahoma City comes in hot as hell, and I still rather play them just because. I'd rather them than this Golden State trash. I kind of want it to die, and I kind of want it to die tomorrow. I'm not going to lie. And part of that is the Cleveland in me, but I, I'm just tired of everything going so perfectly for Golden State. I've never seen anything so perfect. The other shoe's going to drop somewhere. We'll see if it drops uh, tomorrow night or if it takes till Sunday or, or Monday and or maybe even the finals. Uh, obviously, that would make you very, very happy. Uh, follow Ken on Twitter, at Ken Carmen. Listen to him, 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland, in the Ken Carmen Show with Anthony Lima. Kenny, always appreciate it. We'll catch up down the road. Craig, thank you, brother. Craig Hoffman. Alexa Dat covers the Mets for SNY, does a lot of stuff for SNY, is the in-game host, actually, up at City Field for the Mets. And, Alexa, this Matt Harvey story is interesting to me because I, I think it's it's we can get into kind of a broader philosophical conversation after we're done with um, with Harvey specifically on just the role of the media and you know how it serves fans and it's always funny to me when fans complain about the media because we the media are the conduit uh, between the players and the fans. But uh, for those that don't know, Matt Harvey has had a really rough season and after one of his his most recent starts, declined to talk to the press, which is kind of a no no if you're the starting pitcher. You know, you you talk after your starts and he declined to. Um, so I guess we'll start with, with trying to add some context to this. Would you describe Matt Harvey as media friendly? I mean, we've seen him on Fallon and doing all these kind of different things uh, on to kind of build his brand. But in terms of the day-to-day baseball media, would you describe Matt Harvey as media friendly? I mean, I would. And personally, all the interactions that I've had with him, he's been great. You know, now that he's struggling and not speaking to the media, that doesn't really seem to be the case. I don't know that you can really confidently say that. But when you're pitching well and you go on Watch What Happens Live and you want to talk about your threesomes with Andy Cohen and then you don't pitch well and you literally don't want to speak to anyone, I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. It's just, to me, it's kind of childish behavior. And listen, I don't believe that every pitcher has to speak to the media in every circumstance. In fact, like you were saying, a broader philosophical conversation. I don't think that athletes in general – uh, for every situation, have to speak to the media. But if you're going to choose 
to use the media to your advantage when you're doing well and then completely turn your back on them in situations where, one, they could help you, and two, when you just don't feel like it, I don't know. That doesn't make you look good. And do you think this is mere, you know, this is completely performance-based? Is he just skipping out because he doesn't want to answer questions about pitching poorly? See, that's the problem. Nobody really knows. Terry Collins doesn't know. Dan Morgan doesn't know. Or at least they're not saying they know. And when you end up skipping out and you don't really give a reason why, everyone starts speculating. And that's almost worse than whether, you know, than if you had said anything at all. If you had come out and been like, listen, there's something going on. I don't really know what it is. My mechanics feel awkward. I feel weird out there. You know, first time through the lineup, I'm great. Second time and third time, I really start to struggle. I don't know, maybe it's fatigue. And kind of work through it in the media. He would have helped himself, like, so much. The problem now is that because everyone's speculating, that's when the name calling starts. You start calling him a diva. You start saying that it's because of, you know, the fact that he's hanging out with supermodels. You start getting into all kinds of stuff that basically at this point are rumors because no one can prove whether they're true. People start, you know, calling him fat and, and um, commenting on his physique and comparing him to when he was first in the league and what he looked like then. It, you just open up this can of worms for everyone to start saying whatever they feel like because you didn't speak. And it's almost such a negative replacement and even if, you know, there is something more to it than it just being physical, she can work through that, too, in the, in the media. You know, listen, my head's just not in the game. Mentally, I don't really feel like I'm myself. All that can be said without, you know, hurting yourself. In fact, being only help. Sometimes, you know, if a guy's not going to talk after he – has a bad game, he'll talk the next day or, you know, there, there's quite honestly, there, I think there's too many chances in baseball uh, for reporters to talk to players. Um, you know, it's before a game, it's after every game. There's 162 of those things. And he's stayed completely silent, right? Like it wasn't a kind of thing where the next day he called a couple writers over and was like, Hey, like last night, I just, I would have gotten myself in trouble. Let's talk now. He's been completely silent, right? Hasn't taken advantage of any opportunity to, to speak. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of starting to snowball, right? When you've got Ron Darling saying that it's cathartic to speak to the media and you've got David Wright saying that Harvey's now putting pressure on other guys in the clubhouse and you've got Noah Syndergaard saying he doesn't want to comment on Harvey anymore, now you're taking the pressure that you didn't want to put on yourself and putting it on your teammates. And that, to me, is super unfair because the rest of these guys deserve to have to deal with your dirty laundry. And, yeah, he didn't want to speak after he pitched. And, listen, to me, I understand that situation. If you just want to walk away, you don't want to say anything wrong, like Terry Collins said, don't say anything at all if you're going to say something wrong, fine. But the next day, you come out of Terry Collins' office when you just had a conversation with him about how you're staying in the rotation. So you're, still, you're accepting the responsibility of being a starting pitcher in this rotation. Once you come out of that that meeting and you are faced by reporters in the clubhouse and you still don't want to talk, come on, man. That's, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I don't know at that point what, who you think you are. At that point, if you don't feel like talking to the media, you might as well just go on the DL for 15 days and call it, you know, an anxiety disorder, as a couple of players in the past have, because you're not doing anyone any favors and it's just going to make it matters worse for you.
yeah, you know, make up some elbow inflammation. That kind of stuff happens all the time. All the time. In Major League Baseball. Um, the David Wright thing, that's when the story got extra. Like, this was your standard player not talking to media story until David Wright was like, yeah, this is a problem. Um, what is the general sense as you talk to guys in that clubhouse of Matt Harvey, not just specific to this instance, but I mean, last year there was all of the drama around his innings limit. And, and this is a guy who's superstar, you know, it's a superstar at a level that most Mets haven't attained. You know, it's, there's obviously been a ton of Yankees who have done it in New York City. But but for the Mets, this guy is as big as it's, it's gotten over the past couple of years. Obviously, the team had a tremendous season last season on a run to the World Series. Uh, where where do his teammates sit on Matt Harvey, and how could that affect his standing on that team moving forward? Well, you mentioned last year and the innings limit drama. I think that played out more in the media than it did in the clubhouse at all. Okay. I didn't see it affect the guys in the clubhouse. I think it was more between Scott Boris and the organization and then, you know, media members who uh, wrote about the story. And to me, it didn't seem to have any effect whatsoever on the guys and how they got along and how they performed and the, the mood in general in the clubhouse. So to me, that, that didn't really affect anything. Early in the season, when everyone wasn't really sure what was going on with Matt Harvey with the blood clot story, there was, you know, deep and grave concern for Matt Harvey. So that rallied the team around him, and they were very defensive of Matt Harvey about people getting into his business because this is a medical issue. And now it seems like the guys are kind of going the opposite way and are being very vocal to not defend him and, in fact, call him out, which you don't really see very often from a clubhouse that is this close. You know, guys usually either say nothing at all or, you know, we'll try and avoid talking to the media. But to have the captain call you out, I don't know, that's pretty, that's pretty serious. And then Noah Sundergaard, I think it was off the record or it wasn't, wasn't audio-based or it wasn't on video, but he did say to a reporter at a recent event, that he didn't want to comment on Matt Harvey anymore, as if like he's exhausted the issue and he's over it. It sounds like it's definitely bothering the players. And also, I think part of it has to do with the fact that David Wright saw Kevin Buecki have to take the brunt of that post-game interview in the clubhouse and thought that's just absolutely unfair. Because Kevin ha- shouldn't have to stand there and answer all of these questions that Matt Harvey should have had balls to answer. And that's just affecting the relationship, not only between... Matt and Kevin, uh, and Harvey and Pulecki, but between, you know, how the rest of the guys view Harvey, skipping out on that to put the pressure on Pulecki. In the end, like, if you had your best guess of how this winds up playing out, does anything really happen? Does this story just kind of fizzle out? Does Harvey get sent down to the DL and, and then, you know, sent to the DL and then this comes back fine? Is there, you know, could this end with Matt Harvey being traded? Like, what what happens to this on the range of, Story fizzles out, not a big deal in a week, to Matt Harvey winds up being traded later this summer. Yeah, it's hard because Matt Harvey is always a big story. So, And nobody really knows what's going on, and the ones who do aren't saying. So for me, how I feel about it, you know, he's going to pitch on Monday against the White Sox. And if that outing goes well, I think the story fizzles out a little bit. But if it doesn't, I think he ends up making a DL trip. And, you know, they can blame it on anxiety, they can blame it on stress, they can blame it on any sort of mental condition if they want. They can also blame it, like you said, on elbow inflammation or, you know, any sort of you know, pain here or there. Uh, but I think he ends up making a, a DL stint because 
it's just not feasible for him to carry on like this, you know, especially with a team who, who actually has promise and who's trying to make it back to the World Series. So I think Monday is a huge game for him. And, you know, honestly, if we're talking about the mental aspects of this and if it is stress and a lot of pressure, because listen, Noah Syndergaard is now the darling of the team. He is looked at as the ace, whereas that was Matt Harvey's role uh, not too long ago. And if it is Harvey's ego, which is what a lot of people are tending to speculate, that means it's mental. And that means that this is going to be a lot harder for him to come back from and deal with than just a simple elbow injury. So if that's the case, Monday will be, you know, a good barometer, a good test to see exactly how he's handling everything. And then if, you know, Monday doesn't go well, they'll definitely make some sort of a move going from there, I think. Yeah, we'll see, man. That's that's a heck of a way to ruin a really, really good baseball team is your, one of your star pitchers having an ego problem because another guy's pitching better. Um, yeah, and listen, there are a lot of guys on that staff who are pitching well. I mean, Bartolo Colon is 43 years old, and he's still pitching well. Steven Matz, who wasn't even in the majors at this time last year, is, is you know now kind of taking on that Matt Harvey role where this guy goes out and he pitches very well, and he's dominant, and he's mature, and he's got a great attitude. You know, and then you've got you know, Syndergaard, obviously, and Jacob DeGrom. So it's almost like this Matt Harvey situation better work itself out for you know, Matt Harvey is going to have some issues. It's not like they're relying on Matt Harvey. They've got a great rotation without him. Yeah, no no doubt. And that's a heck of a job by the Mets staff to build that over the last couple of years. Um, the, the fact that you've got someone as good as Matt Harvey that you don't need is, is pretty astonishing. Let's zoom out real quick and, and wrap up kind of, and we could probably do a, an hour podcast on this, you know, separately, but just in general, like not speaking to the media or an athlete, what, what do you, what do you as someone who's covered a lot of different teams in, in multiple big cities with rabid fan bases, um, what do you think, generally speaking, uh, the the responsibility of an athlete is to talk to the media? Well, Craig, I mean, you've covered uh, sports for a very long time, so you're kind of you're very familiar with the situation. And I think it's funny because sometimes it can be really entertaining. Like Marshawn Lynch saying, "I'm just here so I won't get fined," was amazing and hilarious, and I loved it, and I still love it. And, you know, different media people feel, feel different ways about it. For somebody who had a specific assignment to write about what Marshawn Lynch said that day, I think could be, uh, could feel a little bit differently than I do about it. But, you know, I thought it was refreshing to write about something and talk about something different than somebody just regurgitating cliche um, sayings back to us on media day. But in general, I think if... You know, a guy is going to use the media to his advantage to prop himself up and to build his brand. Then he also has to help the media out when they need help, which is when you're either going through tough times or when, you know, you need to basically help, you need to help them do their job as well. Um, you know, in, in situations like Tom Brady, I think that he is super approachable to the, all the media members that I've ever talked about with him too, and that has made their jobs with him easier. It also helps Tom Brady because he isn't looked at like a villain by these writers because he's so approachable. Uh, Peyton Manning ends up getting kind of the opposite rep. He's not very approachable, and people tend to jump down you know, his throat when he does something wrong because he doesn't offer you know, 
help in return. So it's kind of like a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of a situation. And maybe that's not the most ethical way that journalism should work. And I get that because if I was in journalism school listening to this right now, I'd be like, that's a crap that, that shouldn't be the way it works. But honestly, if, 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 but that, that's the way it is. That's the way it goes. That's the way it, it, uh, it ends up working. Um, but I think that if guys, you know, like I said, are going to use the media to their advantage, then they should help out in any way that they can. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think if I were to general or boil it down to just like one general sentence, like do whatever you need to do to talk to your fans. And, you know, if that means you're pushing product that you want them to buy, like sometimes you're going to use the media for that. If you just want to be able to talk about your performance because they're interested and you realize that in the end, without the fans, there is no professional sports. And, you know, that's what you got to do. And if you perform poorly, you got to suck it up. So, man, it's uh, it's really interesting to see a guy as media savvy we thought as Matt Harvey go through this and um, obviously as we said the the David Wright and his teammates getting involved has made this particular story uh, a lot more interesting than some of the other media player feuds we've had in the past. Um, Alexa Dat podcast host also uh, does the Mets uh, as I said at the top with SNY and um, the in-game host at City Field but the, the podcast is that's what she said rated five stars on iTunes that's impressive. I didn't know that. I appreciate yeah. that, Greg. Yeah, I just pulled it up, and, and we got 19 reviews and a five-star average, which means all of them. Everyone thinks <laughs> it's awesome. Um, you can go check that out on iTunes. That's what she said. It's really good. I'm actually a couple episodes behind, but I've got a beach trip this weekend, so I might have to do some catch-up listening uh, on that. Do you have, do you have any a, a podcast forthcoming that you want to throw out there? Or just tell everyone to go listen to the ones that are already up. Well, we've got uh, Katie Nolan, who was awesome in the books, and uh, you know we had a podcast with her a couple weeks ago, and the Victor Cruz podcast went really well. I've got Michael Rappaport, John Leguizamo, and Jim Brewer coming up. So Ooh, those are good. a couple of guys that, that yeah that know New York sports really well and really like to talk, and who are hilarious to boot. So. That's yeah, no doubt. The Katie Nolan one was awesome. She's obviously terrific. Uh, there's there's a couple that you've done that are just fantastic listens. Katie is probably one of my favorites. Uh, Ruko was also great. Um, telling He's so funny. I love that embar- guy. Embarrassing stories with Ruko was a good time. Um, <laughs> so I, 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 I don't like being embarrassed, so we're going to leave that that stick to your <laughs> podcast. No embarrassing stories here. Um, also follow Alexa on Twitter, at AlexaNYC. Alexa, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Craig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Call it a wrap. Call it a wrap today on the NBA playoffs. A word on the West in a moment, but we can, in 45 seconds, talk about the East. Cleveland's winning Friday night. Um, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, I think Toronto will make this thing competitive, uh, but I think the worst-case scenario for the Cavs is that LeBron has a LeBron game where he sees things slipping out of hand. If some of the role players played like they did previously in Toronto and he just decides that he's going to take over the game and be awesome because Toronto hasn't found a solution for him yet. And I don't anticipate them finding one. Now, uh, Cleveland can always go back to the, the horns rub play where LeBron's at the elbow and, you know, they, they had, I heard this yesterday. Um, I mean, Hassan was talking about it on ESPN radio, where he said they scored seven different ways off that play, seven straight possessions. So they've got a bread and butter type thing where Toronto can't stop it at all. And it's centered around the best player on earth. And if the Cavs can't get Kevin Love going or Kyrie Irving going or J.R. Smith going and some of these other players, then they'll, LeBron will just go, I don't feel like playing game seven. 
and so he won't. That's how I feel that East is going to go down. As for the West, Steph Curry's health continues to be a story because now anybody who said he was hurt, like me, is having to deal with people who are going, oh, what happened? Because he was great last night. Um, two things. One, this is how injuries work. Some days you have good days, some days you have bad days. And Steph's good days and bad days seem to be, whether he's at home or on the road, and that's certainly part of it. You know, Sleeping in your own bed and things like that are probably good for your injury. Um, being able to get your regular rhythm and your in treatment in your home arena and all of those things probably help. Um, but also I think there's a lot of validity in what Steve Kerr said, where Kerr said, you know, Steph's kind of playing his way back into shape because he missed almost a month. I think that's valid too. And as we get further down the road away from the injury, it's going to be healthier. And he's also going to to get his win back and, and get some of that burst back and play his way back into basketball shape. And maybe last night was the breaking point and we're done with the story, but maybe not. Um, but to not acknowledge it at all is silly. And if I had someone smarter than me that could say that, that'd be great. I do. His name's Pablo Torre. Uh, he writes for ESPN, the magazine, and yesterday hosted the jump. Rachel Nichols shows Rachel was off uh, doing some other things and covering the game. And this is what Pablo had to say. Yes, everybody hurts sometimes. But the point is that the hurt is not always equal. And the reason to highlight Steph's health is not to make excuses. It is to be honest about what the postseason really is. An annual war of attrition coming after an 82-game ultramarathon. It is to point out that this inequality of hurt due to injury management and random chance and the sheer fragility of the meat sack that is the human body, absolutely decides championships. This is why calling the Warriors lucky last year after they beat a Cavs team without Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love was both ridiculous and valid. Ridiculous because it underrates injury management and valid because it acknowledges that randomness does exist. Pablo's really smart. Pablo went to Harvard. I think he knows what he's talking about here because he's written extensively about injury management and a lot of these topics that surround injuries and sports science and health. If you don't want to take my word for it, take his. Because he's right. Pablo's full two-minute monologue, very worth your time. Uh, I'll post it up, embed it on the blog page at hoffmanshow.com right below this very podcast. After the game was very interesting as well. The Warriors win 120-111. to 111, And Steph Curry has just a brilliant closing stretch. Offensively and defensively. Attacking the rim. Hits uh, some outside shots in there as well. Has a block on Kevin Durant uh, where he got caught on a switch. And is able to strip Durant going up. Uh, just to the point that Durant has to alter a shot. And then Andrew Bogut winds up blocking him a second time on the same play. Curry has a great steal late. Also makes the play, by the way, on that double block. He saves the ball from going out of bounds and then pivots into the front and and takes off into the front court in just a subtly brilliant play um, where he's trusting his handle and his instinct and um, he's trapped in the corner and gets out uh, just with a strong pivot. It's great fundamental play. And so Steph... Really has an all-around great game. Not this dazzling shooting display. He did have some some big outside shots and shot it well from the outside, but really just showed off the complete game on both ends. And so afterwards, Kevin Durant is asked by ESPN's Michelle Steele if Curry is underrated as a defender. 
This was KD's answer. Getting steals, uh, I don't know if that's just, uh, that's a part of playing defense, but, um, you know, he's pretty good, but he, he guards, he doesn't guard the best point guards. I think uh, they do a good job of putting a couple guys on Russell from Thompson to, to Igudala. And, you know, Steph, though, they throw him in, uh, throw him in there sometimes. So he moves his feet pretty well. He's good with his hands. Uh, but I, li- I, like, I like our matchup with, with him guarding Russell. As he's answering, Russell Westbrook is giggling like a child in the background. He's sitting next to Durant at the podium, and he's just arm in elbow, or head in elbow, laughing hysterically. Apparently, that's a thing for Russ. Uh, Royce Young from ESPN, who covers the Thunder, uh, was tweeting out that Russ deplores complimenting other players. It's just it's just a, a, a non-starter with him. So that was part of it. But it's one of those situations where why, why ruffle Curry's feathers? Like, it's a perfect answer uh, situation for Durant. And look, I love the honesty. And I believe that Kevin believes what he's saying. And I don't necessarily agree or disagree with everything. Like, the Westbrook on Curry matchup, not bad for OKC. I'd rather that than any of the other options that OKC can throw on Russ, from Sean Livingston to uh, Clay Thompson to Andre Iguodala to whoever. Bigger, stronger defenders that can at least use their length to keep Russell in front because I love something else Pablo said in that two-minute rant. Russell Westbrook is the only player with an infinite turbo button, and so trying to keep him in front speed-wise is never going to happen. But use your length, your strength, and, and try to make Russell's life more difficult. And Curry is not as strong as Westbrook, and, and his length isn't as long as some of these other players. But if you're Durant, like, don't make Steph mad. You've seen what happens when Steph gets mad. Westbrook on the drive, falling away. Won't go. Rebound taken by Iguodala. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way down the Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! He starts doing crazy stuff like that, which he hasn't done yet in the series outside of the one stretch of game two. Two-minute stretch, 15 points. He hasn't done that. He's due for one. So I can just imagine next game, before the game, Draymond Green going, remember what they said about your defense? And then Steph just going out and being mad and being locked in and being cocky because Steph can do that. And I don't know if it's cocky or arrogant or just appropriately confident because he's the best shooter ever. When you're the best ever, like your confidence level is allowed to be high because it's correct. Steph, predictably, was diplomatic about his answer, but he was diplomatically correct. This is what he said after my man, Tim McMahon, ever the instigator, asked him about it. I got a great teammate that's uh, obviously a better defender on the perimeter. Uh, I like the challenge. Um, I'll do my job the best I can. That's that's what I'm out there to do. So <clears throat> in those situations, um, I don't get too caught up in the one-on-one matchup. That's, you know, my job is to follow the game plan. And, you know, I've done that the last four years of my career, trying to elevate my def- defensive presence um, and do my job. And while diplomatic, he's right. 
Clay is a better defender and a better option on Russell Westbrook. But it's not like Curry's bad. I think the premise of Michelle Steele's original question is correct. I think Curry is underrated as a defender. Most people think he's garbage because he's skinny and whatever. It's like, oh, he's just this offensive guy. No, he's not. He's actually a pretty solid defender. He's average at worst. And on some nights, he's really good, and he's got great hands. Steals aren't everything, but he deflects a lot of balls, and he does get a lot of steals, which are impact defensive plays. He had five last night. And, oh, by the way, per ESPN stats and information, Russell Westbrook is 8 of 25 with seven turnovers when Steph Curry is guarding him as the primary defender in this series. Those aren't great numbers. I love to see how many assists he's had because... Curry hasn't been able to keep Westbrook out of the lane and I think that's probably part of his effectiveness and and look Kevin Durant should like that matchup of Russell Westbrook on Steph Curry because it is generally favorable for Oklahoma City but it doesn't make Curry a bad defender Russell Westbrook's one of the best five players probably in basketball definitively one of the best seven or eight not the back end of the top 10 isn't where he is he's exceptional and he is a wholly unique offensive force not being able to stop him doesn't mean you're bad as a defender it means you're a defender (laughs) because russ is really good so is steph underrated yes if i was kevin durant would i've done anything to try to make him mad no but they're both kind of right. Like He moves his feet well. He does what he's asked to do in the scheme. He's got great hands. And it's just the tone of it. Where Durant was kind of dismissive. Curry said a lot of the same things. But said them as positives. And they're both kind of right if you boil it down to the facts. I just, I would make that guy mad. He may be baby-faced. He may be the nicest guy But on the court, you wouldn't necessarily like him when he's angry. Thanks to Alexa Dat. Thanks to Ken Carmen joining me on this Hoffman Show podcast. Thanks, of course, as always, to you for listening, downloading, subscribing, however you're consuming this. I very, very much appreciate it. Be back with a couple more podcasts next week, as always, on days that there is no audio writing on the blog page at hoffmanshow.com. There you can also, as always, subscribe to the RSS feed for the blog, the RSS feed, um, or just the iTunes feed for the podcast. However you so choose to consume, you got options, man. Life's about options. Go out, have a great weekend. Uh, Thanks again for listening. I am Craig Hoffman. This is The Hoffman Show. Goodbye. (laughs) 